Hi, and welcome to Class Session 34. Well, after our short session on Monday, I was determined to get through as much of the rest of the two towers as I could today. And all in all, I'm relatively pleased. We did get as far as Kirathungal, and almost, if not quite, to Shelob's lair. On we go. Okay, so since we spent last time talking almost entirely about the papers, um, I want to accelerate today because I don't want to stay really, really far behind. So it is my goal today to get all the way to, if not including, Sam and Sheila. Okay? So here we go. So I'm going to go fast. This also means um, that I'm probably not going to call on you as often because as much as I would love to linger and have long conversations about everything we're going to talk about today, if we do that, we will certainly never catch up. Um, so I just wanted to apologize in advance for not calling on you much of the time <laughs> today as we are in acceleration mode and then we will have hopefully a much more luxurious conversation with Professor Drought on Friday. I said at the end of last time that the book prompts us to have less sympathy for Gollum than the movie prompts us to have sympathy for Gollum. But I don't want, I don't want you to misunderstand that. I'm not saying that we're, the book doesn't prompt us to have any pity, uh, any sympathy for Gollum, that he is like this, you know, the movie depicts him as conflicted, like, you know, this sort of multiple personality, good guy, bad guy thing going on. And the, the book just depicts him as universally uh, bad. It certainly doesn't. I mean, of course, we have to remember that the very first and most forceful cue we get uh, for our response to Gollum is the importance of pity. Uh, and the significance of Bilbo's decision. And if you can remember back not to the discussions of Bilbo's decision that was quoted for us uh, in, in, in the previous reading um, where Frodo has his little chapter two of the Fellowship of the Ring flashback. Um, but if you remember all the way back to the actual decision that Bilbo made in The Hobbit, what motivated his decision as he's standing there and Gollum is standing between him and the exit and his first impulse is... He, 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 he has to kill him. And this is not just a purely objective decision. He is an obstacle in my way and must be eliminated. It's articulated. He articulates it to himself in highly emotional terms. He must stab the vile creature, put its eyes out, kill it. I mean, it's, it's this very violent impulse which stems from, as Gandalf points out to Frodo, fear for his own safety. His impulse when he is afraid for his own safety is to lash out at Gollum really violently. However, he immediately, Bilbo immediately turns from that and has a little echo of his own internal debate. No, he says to himself, it's not a fair fight. I'm invisible, he can't see me. Um, and at that moment, pity arises in him and the pity comes from identification with him. He imagines what it would be like living in the roots, at the roots of the mountain, in the dark, cut off from light and from hope, and what might happen to him if he were in that situation. He sees, for a moment, a kind of likeness, a kind of sympathy, and that's what prompts his pity, which ultimately then leads him to take what Tolkien describes as a leap in the dark, and he jumps over, makes this huge, tremendous physical leap uh, over Gollum instead of stabbing him and then sprints his way out with Gollum shouting after him. So that is, the, that, that, is that, that, that first cue we have. We see Bilbo sympathizing with him, um, and we get several similar cues. Again, not only are, are we reminded of that one, um, when they're in Ithilien, and Faramir and his men are talking about the gangrel creature uh, who is coming along with Frodo and Sam, what do they connect it to? What do they think it might be? They don't really know. A very large squirrel? Yes, yes. A black squirrel, maybe? A little big for a squirrel, but maybe it's a squirrel? Um, now, this seems implausible, but there's a theory which would explain it. Why would there be a huge black squirrel in Athelion? Can it a snowmobile? <laughs> no. <laughs> Where are there huge black squirrels? Merkwood, of course. And Faramir, you know, Faramir cracks a joke at one point. You might not have caught it because Faramir is not exactly a stand-up comic. And so, but I'm convinced that he's on purpose making a joke. Because um, 
Anborn is the, the soldier who at first who saw Gollum briefly and, and says maybe it was just a squirrel. And then when, they, when Anborn, that same soldier, sees Gollum diving into the pool, Faramir turns to him and says, what do you say it is, Anborn? A squirrel or a kingfisher? Are there black kingfishers in the woods of Mirkwood? That's the joke, you see, because he was like, oh, maybe it's a black squirrel from Mirkwood. And he's like, hey, maybe it's a black kingfisher from, 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 from Mirkwood. No, but now what Farmier says is we don't want the escapes of Mirkwood here in Athelia. Perfectly plausible. As the, as the shadow grows, we saw what happened to Mirkwood. Mirkwood used to be Greenwood the Great. It was corrupted primarily by Sauron's presence down in southern Mirkwood and Dal Guldur. And its name changed from Greenwood to Mirkwood. And the creatures in it became dark, literally, like physically dark uh, and, and corrupt. The black squirrels, you'll remember from The Hobbit, even taste bad. Um, well, they finally shoot one, and it's disgusting, and they can't eat it. Even though they're starving, they don't eat it. Um, and Faramir does not like... He, he says it would, be, it would be a bad omen to have one of the escapes of Mirkwood down in Ithilien, to imagine Sauron doing to Ithilien this beautiful land, um, which, which Faramir loves, to think that what happened in Mirkwood is happening here, too. But of course... An escape from Mirkwood is exactly what Gollum is. He did escape from Mirkwood, where the elves were holding him captive, right? So there's an irony to that observation. And that irony, I think, draws our attention to... Basically, it invites us to connect more directly Gollum and those black squirrels. No, he's not a black squirrel, of course. But actually, in some ways, he's like the black squirrel. The black squirrel is not a moral agent, Right? The squirrels of, of Mirkwood are not evil, malevolent squirrels who have left the path of goodness. They have just been corrupted by the presence of Sarah. And one consequence, I think, of this invitation to think about Gollum and the, bla- and the black squirrels at the same time is essentially to, cre- to increase, at least, our sympathy. Gollum, too, like the black squirrels, has been acted upon. It's not just him making wrong decisions. Um, He has been tainted. He has been corrupted by evil which has acted on him, not entirely of his own will. Now, of course, he's not a black squirrel. He is a moral agent, and he has made some very questionable choices uh, from the murder of of Diego onwards. But uh, nevertheless... That parallel does invite us uh, to think about him pityingly. And then, of course, we have the primary moment of sympathy for Gollum. Um, the tragedy uh, in the path of Kirithungal. This is on page 699. This is the moment when Gollum comes back and finds the two of them sleeping. And Gollum experiences pity. Second paragraph after the break on 699. Gollum looked at them. A strange expression passed over his lean, hungry face. The gleam faded from his eyes, and they went dim and gray, old and tired. A spasm of pain seemed to twist him, and he turned away, peering back up towards the pass, shaking his head, as if engaged in some interior debate. Then he came back, and slowly putting out a trembling hand, very cautiously he touched Frodo's knee, but almost the touch was a caress. For a fleeting moment, could one of the sleepers have seen him, They would have thought that they beheld an old, weary hobbit, shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond his time, beyond friends and kin, and the fields and streams of youth, an old, starved, pitiable thing. And, tragically, Sam wakes up and misinterprets, doesn't see this, and accuses him, uh, you know, seeing him pawing at master, as he thinks. And then immediately... Gollum withdrew himself, and a green glint flickered under his heavy lids. Almost spider-like, he looked now, crouched back on bent limbs with his protruding eyes. The fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. For that one brief moment, Gollum almost comes around. We see him looking back up the pass and reconsidering. Where has he just come from? What was he doing? He sneaks off, and Sam says, Where is he hunting? What the heck is he hunting? Is there a particular kind of rock that he's looking for? And Frodo says, well, don't worry about it. Where is he? Making arrangements with Shelob. He is bowing down before Shelob. 
saying, I have brought you meat at that time. So he's just come back from that. And it's at that, after he has just betrayed them, when he has this moment where he almost turns back. But through an unfortunate misunderstanding, which is not exactly Sam's fault. I mean, again, ironically, although Sam is misinterpreting that particular moment, although Sam misses the potential change of heart that is happening within Gollum at that instant, Sam's suspicions are perfectly justified. You know, Sam says, I hope he's not up to any mischief. Well, he was up to mischief, at least as bad as Sam fears. Sam is right about him. So, again, and that's, that's the tragedy of it. This is not just, oh, Sam blew it. Had Sam, you know, not been so mean, then, you know, Gollum would have... No, Sam was... Sam was right. But, but again, it is a moment of tragic misunderstanding. Now, we, we can't take it too far. This is not, you know, really at heart, Gollum is good and he's just being acted on by evil. I mean, the, the spider-like image of him, that's him too. And that's him as he's chosen to be. Um, he didn't have to come back, necessarily, and worship Shelob and bring her food, as he promised that he would long ago. Yeah? This reminds me of grace. Sam is failing to provide grace, which cannot be expected, but would have been helpful. Gollum doesn't deserve forgiveness, but if he'd gotten it anyway, it might have helped. Possibly, yeah. I mean, I... Yeah. Sam's attitude towards him is justified. Um, but, yeah. Are you even saying that grace is doing what is not justified? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You're right. I mean, I do, I do, I do see your point. Again, it's hard to say... It's still hard to say, gosh, Sam should have acted otherwise. But, but, but I agree. Um, one can imagine a different outcome had that happened. Yeah, Kelly? Should we be reminded of Turin waking up and accidentally stabbing Bailey? I try not to think about that too often, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, um, that's. I think that's an interesting connection. Um, it certainly is a previous example of somebody waking up out of sleep and leaping to an extremely understandable, but ultimately extremely tragic conclusion. Fortunately, this is not nearly so tragic as that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that that, that, that is a, a legitimate and very interesting parallel. Um, as there, you can't really blame Turin for what he did. It's not his fault that he killed Peleg. But, gosh, it sucks that he did. Uh, and, the same thing I think you can say for Sam here. Um, it's not his fault that he treats Gollum like this. He's, he's right. But, but it's kind of too bad. Um, remember that what I always come back to with Gollum, what seems, I think, to kind of resonate again and again, um, are the emphases that Tolkien puts in. If you go back to the first edition of The Hobbit, uh, the Riddles in the Dark chapter, the Gollum, ca- the Gollum chapter, and then the, the, the revised edition, and the stuff that he changes after he's been working on The Lord of the Rings. He makes Gollum both, both more pitiable and more wicked. Um, and those are, I think, two things that he maintains pretty consistently throughout The Lord of the Rings, and it's important that we don't forget either side. Um, he is both miserable and wicked. Um, notice Gollum's ring-induced monologue. He got one. Right? Which is interesting, actually. I mean, that you'd think Gollum would be past the monologuing stage uh, in his relationship with the ring. One thing that this suggests, of course, is that the ring itself is changing and its approach is changing. Um, and Gollum's relation to it arguably is changing. This is not, and it's not his precious anymore. It's not just his, his ring that he had for hundreds of years. Um, his understanding of it has changed, and his desire for it, therefore, 
has also changed. Um, it's worth looking at. This is page 619, about halfway down the page. See, my precious, if we has it, then we can escape, even from him, eh? Perhaps we grows very strong, stronger than wraiths. Lord Smeagol, Gollum the Great, the Gollum. Eat fish every day, three times a day, fresh from the sea. Most precious Gollum. I, I love that title. Uh, he's going to put that on all of his, you know, business cards. Uh, you may address me as most precious Gollum. Uh, how does it affect him? What does his ring monologue show? We looked at, at, at Boromir's whole ring-induced monologue process, and we could see the ways in which it was acting on him. How is it acting on Gollum? Yeah, Elise? Well, Gollum worked on it in power for himself, whereas Boromir wanted it um, to kind of like help to honor and power of his land, but uh, Snagol just wants the big title and to be powerful himself above everybody else. Yeah, yeah, good. There's nothing, there's no rationalization, there's no greater good lie here yeah i think that that's 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 very important he is unashamedly selfish from the beginning what is the perfect uh manifestation of his power eating fish three times a day straight from the sea right being able to command other people to bring him oh yeah you know saltwater fish this is what it would be to be Gollum the great uh and but notice the difference not just the difference from boromir but the difference from his own Relationship with the ring in the past as well. Kelly? He's not slinking anymore. He's stinking. Yeah, this is stinker. Yeah, yeah. Because he, he all of a sudden he wants dominion over people instead of just hiding in his own little cave. Yeah, think of the significance of, of his calling it the precious, right? That is, previously his focus was on the ring itself and on his value for it. Now he, he connects it with himself, and sometimes when he says, my precious, it seems that he's talking to himself and not to the ring. So the preciousness, what exactly is being placed at the center, it's not, it's not selflessly the ring. It is also his own self-serving as well. But, but nevertheless, there's something almost humble in the whole my precious outlook. Whereas here, the humility is gone. Now he is seeing, he is articulating the ring as a means to an end, not as an end in itself. The having of the precious was the goal before. Now, the precious can get me power. He's, he's encountered, he's met Sauron now. And one of the consequences is, now I see, I don't know what, I see like this, the, the space for upward mobility. It will protect me from him. Now I can, I can, I can, I, I can disregard Sauron now. Now I can have more power than him. Now I can have power like him. He never wanted to be Gollum the Great before. And now he does. So, I mean, I think we can see some important, uh, some interesting changes there. I'm not moving fast enough, so I must keep moving. Uh, but, but, but good. Now, Slinker and Stinker. As I said before, that's Sam's characterization, right? And it is possible, of course, that Sam is not fully doing justice to Gollum in that characterization. The voice that he calls Slinker does seem at times uh, in that debate that is it's that's the it's where the ring monologue comes in it's from the bottom of 618 to 619 it does seem to be actually concerned with keeping his promise for instance it does seem to ar- to argue on the basis of some actual positive values but there is also slinker about it that is the malice that is open which is stinker and the malice which is merely concealed or delayed uh, remember, it's Slinker doesn't just doesn't shout things like "No, never, that's not right, we won't do that," but "Not now, not yet," right? That's what Sam means by calling the comparatively good side of Gollum Slinker compared to Stinker. Now, what is really interesting, Sam himself will do the same thing at the end of Book Four. Near the very end of book four, we will see Sam having his own internal debate with himself. The two sides of himself. You remember this? It's on page 723, no, uh, 715. This is after he, he's chased Shelob off. He has, he believes Frodo to be dead. 
the, the, the debate starts internally, that is non-verbally, in his mind. And he considers two courses of action which he dismisses. The first is vengeance, and the second is suicide. And both of them he dismisses. And then his internal debate becomes verbal. What am I to do then, he cried. And now he seemed plainly to know the answer. See it through. What, me, alone, go to the crack of doom and all? He quailed still, but the resolve grew. What, me, take the ring from him? The council gave it to him. But the answer came at once. And the council gave him companions, so that the errand should not fail. And you are the last of the company. The errand must not fail. I wish I wasn't the last, he groaned. I wish old Gandalf was here or somebody. Why am I left all alone to make up my mind? I'm sure to go wrong. And it's not for me to go taking the ring, putting myself forward. But you haven't put yourself forward. You've been put forward. And as for not being the right and proper person, why, Mr. Frodo wasn't, as you might say, nor Mr. Bilbo. They didn't choose themselves. Quickly, what do you notice about those two voices? Sam's own two voices here. Marta? Simple interior voice is not trying to make the decision for him, unlike the golem half of the evil column. Yes. It's just trying to encourage you right here. This is something you can do, and you can do it. You can do it because you've been already been chosen to do it. Good. Yeah, think of the way when Gollum is doing his slinker stinker thing. When Stinker is speaking, he's gro- he's groping towards Frodo and then Slinker pulls back. It's like he is fighting against the one side is trying to coerce the other. And you're right, Sam's other side is not trying to coerce him. The counter argument to I can't or I shouldn't is not you must. It's you should. You can, and you should. Notice grammatically the difference? Jordan? Um, his, 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 his denying side that refused to do is questioning, mm-hmm. and the answering. Good. We have interrogatives versus indicatives. That is one clear pattern, and I think a very important one. Good. What else, Elise? Um, also, the answer voice is more... I mean, it doesn't... Like Sam's voice is more sounds more like him, like how he would speak, whereas the answering voice, um, I don't want to say. I guess the sentences are more grammatically correct, and it sounds more uh, assured and authoritative. Yes, I agree. That his voice, which is resistant to taking the ring, is more dialect heavy, more. Sam, low-class dialect. Good, I agree. Look at the pronouns. You and I. Yeah, the, the, one speaks in the first person, the other speaks in the second person throughout. You have him and him, his sense of himself. What? Me? Look at the number, and not just the, the, the fact that it's using different pronouns, but the, the way they're repeated. What? Me? Me alone? Me, in italics, I wish I wasn't the last. I wish old again. Why am I left alone? I'm sure to go wrong. It's not for me putting myself. It's the constant emphasis. It is sort of him, his sense of himself speaking with the constant emphasis on himself. And then when he addresses himself in the second person, the emphasis is on outside of him. You are not putting yourself forward. You have been put forward. You see, I don't know what names Sam would give to his two sides, right? If, if Gollum is Slinker and Stinker, uh, who is he? Uh, I'm not sure what names he would give here. Um, but just like Gollum's two sides, neither one of them is really a good side. So here with Sam, neither side is really a bad side. This is not Sam resisting temptation. The side which doesn't want to take the ring doesn't want to take the ring, not out of fear, but out of what? Duty. Duty is what's prompting him to go. It's your job. You've been put forward. If Like, he's like, I'm just far too small for this. It's not my place to put myself forward. Yeah, yeah. So, like, a sense of smallness. 
It's almost like humility, right? That's not a bad thing. It's like slinking isn't a good thing. Humility is not a bad thing. His own sense of his unworthiness, his own sense of his smallness, and that final counter-argument is a really good one. Frodo is not the right and proper person either. Neither was Bilbo. They weren't worthy. They weren't big enough. In fact, arguably, it was because they were small enough. Um, okay, now I'm going to go really fast. One thing that I, I'm not even going to draw any conclusions about, I just want to draw your attention to it because it's going to come back and be really important in book six when we return to Frodo and Sam in the final leg of their trip into Mordor. And that is when they talk about hope. Look, watch for references to hope and despair because it's, it's a very interesting pair of concepts in the way that hope is defined by, uh, by Tolkien, especially in these two books, especially in the trip to Mordor. You may recall, way back in the Council of Elrond, Gandalf made a kind of definition. Um, when they say, when the response to Elrond saying, we must send the ring, the ring to the fire, um, is one of the elves, Galdor or Erestor, I can never keep the two of them straight, says, that sounds like the, the, path, the, the course of despair. And Gandalf's response, he says, despair? And he gives a little definition. Despair is for those who see the end beyond all doubt, and that we don't. Despair is for those who see the end beyond all doubt. If you are 100% certain of what the end is going to be, that's the time for despair. So, of course, the way that that principle would be applied at the Council of Elrond is, hey, it may be 95% certain to fail, but it's not 100%, and so no, no despair. That might not seem like a strong argument, but Gandalf and Elrond aren't in the business of making strong arguments to defend the trip to Mordor at any point in there. Remember, this is why we're going to choose Merry and Pippin over Gorfindel as well. Uh, for, for people on, on, on the trip, let's, let's do the thing which is not wise. Um, that's where we, well, it's not exactly where we start, but that's an initial frame we get for what despair is and, 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 and what hope might mean. There are a couple of passages that I want to draw your attention to along the way where this issue comes up again, and it's, they're going to come back and talk about it more later. Look briefly on page 610. This is Frodo and Sam talking about their food supplies. Uh, Sam is asking him, how long does he think it's going to take to do the job? Because he's trying to plan out how long they have to make their food last. I don't know how long we shall take to to finish, said Frodo. And now skipping down a bit, he says, To do the job, as you put it, what hope is there that we ever shall? And if we do, who knows what will come of that? If the one goes into the fire and we are at hand, I ask you, Sam, are we ever likely to need bread again? I think not. If we can nurse our limbs to bring us to Mount Doom, that's all that we can do. More than I can, I begin to feel. Frodo doesn't seem to have that much hope. And he uses that word and puts it in those terms. A little bit later, they are facing the black gate, which looks pretty hopeless. And Sam is expressing the hopelessness of this. Page 623, here's the gate, and it looks to me as if that's about as far as we were ever going to get. And he ima- <laughs> I love how he applies, uh, you know, the, how his gaffer, his dad, often said I'd come to a bad end if I didn't watch my step. He did. I don't think this is what the gaffer had in mind <laughs> uh, <laughs> when he said that. But, uh, but anyway, um, nor can I imagine <laughs> the gaffer's response to the situation be to say, I told you so, Sam. Uh, but look at Frodo's response. In the face of this hopelessness, which even Sam is saying, look, there's, there's, there's no point in going on, Sam says. And Frodo says at the top of 624, I am commanded to go to the land of Mordor, and therefore I shall go. If there is only one way, then I must take it. What comes after must come. That's not an expression of hope. There's no optimism there. But that's Frodo's response in an apparently hopeless situation. Now look at page 723. Sam's first, re- first reaction upon finding that Frodo is still alive. 
He says internally to himself, you fool, he isn't dead and your heart knew it. Don't trust your, ham, Sam, your head, Samwise, it's not the best part of you. The trouble with you is you never really had any hope. Now what's to be done? The trouble, what he chides himself for, the trouble with you, Sam, is that you never had any hope. Never really had any hope. He wasn't the one who'd been expressing hopelessness before, but this is why he says he gave up on Frodo. If he had really had hope, he wouldn't have made the choice that he did. He wouldn't have made the interpretation that he did. And that's an interesting thing to say. As I say, I'm not going to come to any conclusions about this now. Keep these things in mind. When we come back to Frodo and Sam and Mortar, we'll talk about them more. And certainly, whenever you see references to hope and despair in the future, this is, of course, going to be relevant not only in Book 6, but in Book 5 in Minas Tirith. Despair is going to be a bit of a problem when we're trying to defend Minas Tirith from the enemy. So watch out for that, too. Um, two brief um, setting observations. That is, we go through the Dead Marshes. Um, where you have the apparently visions of the corpses underneath the marshes as they go. Um, one sort of, sort of side note here. Um, as Tolkien says in the, pro, in the preface to the second edition uh, that I asked you to read, he responds to a lot of people who are making interpretations of the Lord of the Rings based on World War II. Um, and points out in that preface, people seem to be forgetting the fact that World War I was kind of at least as formative an experience, um, especially for those of his generation who lost most of their friends in it and fought in it themselves. Um, well, that invitation by Tolkien to think more about World War I and less about World War II has, you know, lately in the last uh, uh, 10, 15 years, been taken up very uh, vigorously by many Tolkien scholars, and some really interesting stuff has been done. Um, one of the foremost scholars in this field that is thinking about Tolkien in World War I and its impact on Tolkien's writing uh, is a guy named John Garth, um, who wrote a book called Tolkien in the Great War. And um, one of the arguments that he makes is that the, the passage of the marshes, particularly, is one of the places... Uh, in The Lord of the Rings, where we can most clearly see Tolkien's own experience in World War I um, kind of coming through and being re- reflected fairly directly. Um, and he makes some quite uh, physical connections. That is, walking through a wet, stinking, muddy morass on top of corpses and looking down to find the faces of dead people staring up at you under your feet through the mud and the mire would have been an experience that Tolkien would actually have had um, during, in the trenches in World War I and on the battlefields of World War I, where sometimes corpses uh, of people uh, gunned down by the machine guns would have been you know, more than one layer thick on the ground that you were trying to, 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 to move across. Um, so, and, and I think this is, uh, I, mean, I, I think that this, this is a really important context to remember. Um, certainly there's no getting around the fact uh, that World War I unquestionably had an enormous uh, impact on Tolkien. The one, one thing that I would say, though, in response, and this is not like a response to John Garth, but rather a response to readers <laughs> of John Garth, be careful, and similar critics, of course, we have to be careful with things like this. I think that one tendency, one tendency that I see anyway, when people start making biographical connections like this, and I've said something like this before, um, the reason that I tend to be resistant and not to bring up Tolkien's biography very much uh, during the course of the class is that there's this tendency, I think, when we see a connection like this, to feel like we've figured something out. Like we have the key to the thing. We read the passage of the marches and say, ah, World War I. Got it. Like we now have a special insight into this. And I think that it's useful, but merely, merely pointing out that connection has not made any use of it yet. We haven't really learned very much about the passes, the, the passes of the marshes, 
what's happening in that chapter, what's happening in that place, what its function is in the story, just by observing, hey, he's probably remembering his own experience in World War I when he's doing this. Um, the tendency is to sort of now begin to kind of start importing wholesale stuff from Tolkien's life into this. Like, now, okay, now when we're thinking about Gollum and Frodo and Sam going through the Dead Marshes, we're thinking about the trenches, and we're thinking about World War I. We shouldn't be thinking about the trenches in World War I. We should be thinking about Frodo and Sam and Gollum in the Dead Marshes. And if, if knowing about the trenches in World War I helps, gives us some kind of insight, great. But that in itself isn't an answer. It's not a conclusion. You see? Um, what Tolkien was really resistant to, he hated when people made biographical connections. Well, he hated when people made biographical connections which sort of take over and people stop really reading the story and instead are just trying essentially to like psychoanalyze the author. What does this reveal about him? That drove him crazy. And not just because he's saying, hey, like, stop speculating about me, but because you're not reading the story anymore when you're doing that. And he wants you to be reading the story. So when we think about that, we need to think about things like, what is the emphasis in the story? Think about the dead faces in the marshes. Okay, I don't doubt there is some connection. I mean, how could he not at least have been thinking about World War I when he wrote that? But... But what is the function? What is emphasized in the story? You've got the candles of the corpses. The flames are lit, and that's when the faces show up. Who, within this story, what is the emphasis? What reaction is there to the faces? What's, what does this story draw our attention to about them? Yeah. Brittany, what were you thinking? I was going to say the, the sacrifice of people before them in their class. And the interesting thing is that it's not just good guys. One of the interesting things about the Dead Marshes is sort of who's in charge of the Dead Marshes. That is, there seems to be magic of some kind. Whose magic is it, exactly? I mean, Sauron's? Maybe. Um, But it doesn't seem like it. I mean, when they see the men and the elves under there, they describe it as noble faces and sad. I mean, what's the point? I mean, if it's Sauron doing it, what's the point? The marshes have grown and swallowed up the graves, Gollum says. Okay, but what makes the images appear? Who's doing it and for what reason? And, I, and I'm not saying that to imply, I don't know that there is an answer to that question. I and mean, we never find out anything about it. Um, I don't think there is an, an obvious answer to the who question. But it seems the whole thing seems to be like a kind of memorial. Even the candle image, it's, I mean, it kind of sounds to me like a, a, like a candle lit in memory. When the candles are lit, you can see the faces, right? Um, and it does remember does help to remember the heroes that are gone. The orcs are there too, though. The dead orcs. And that's really interesting. Tony, what are you thinking? Uh, I was just going to say, because they're all there, it's sort of that you know, reminder that in death, everybody is equal. Whether you're good or bad, once you're dead, you're all going to end up in the same place. Well, not exactly the same place, of course. But, but, but yeah, I, but I take the point anyway. Uh, 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 Middle-earth... Uh, metaphysics aside, yeah, they certainly look equal there. Um, And the reaction to all of them seems sort of the same. That is, you know, when Frodo and Sam see the faces, it's not like they respond differently to the orc faces versus the elf faces. It's just the dead faces, all of the dead faces that they respond to. Josh? I think that Gollum's reaction is probably important where he just kind of wants to not look at the faces whatsoever because he's so absorbed in himself and his own sort of obsession of power not to make go 
discussion about how you know people in power, whether it be in the World War or whatever, don't like to see that kind of uh, those casualties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in that same preface, he talks about the difference between allegory and applicability. And it is not hard to see the dead, face, the dead faces in the dead marshes uh, as applicable to World War I, World War II, and subsequent times. Um, this war, power, leads to dead faces. Orcs, elves, men, all dead, all rotten. And Antonia, there's a coming back again to that equivalency among them. All dead, all rotten. And yeah, Gollum is missing the point. Completely missing the point. Because he sees those and he thinks, ooh, corpses. Lunch is the implication of what he sees. Sam doesn't like to think about why he wanted to touch the corpses. Um... Remember, he's also, Sam is also, doesn't tell Gollum where he finds that, bear, that place with the bones where the orcs appeared to catch somebody or something and kill it, knead it, and burn the bones because he doesn't want, he assumes Gollum would go and mess with the bones. Um, yeah, yeah, Sam doesn't like to think what he would do with them. But it's, whatever it is, all very self-centered. He wanted to reach and touch them um, for whatever, whatever disgusting reason he wanted to do it. Um, plainly missing the point. Uh, whoever is making the point, that is missing the point of the faces in the dead marshes. Um, don't like going fast enough. The desolation before Mordor. Um, remember the desolation of the dragon uh, in The Hobbit when we get near to the Lonely Mountain. One of the things that happens here... In Saruman, we see a mind of metal and wheels, which is the one thing. Um, Treebeard says there's nobody who's really on his side. Uh, nobody cares for the trees like he does. But there are some creatures who are altogether not on his side. And he's talking about the orcs there. But it is clear Saruman, with his mind of metal and wheels, is altogether not on the side of Treebeard. In Sauron and Mordor, in the land around the Black Gate we see something which goes beyond a mind of metal and wheels. Simple, <coughs> pure, cancerous destruction. Um, that this land will never be cleansed. No matter what happens, it will ne- no- nothing will ever grow here again. Saruman only cares about living things in so much as they will serve his purpose. Sauron's presence, like the Sauron and what he does, is simply antithetical to living and growing things. And it permanently blights them. Um, And this, of course, is another way in which evil is always counterproductive. It can't produce anything. It is, there's this sickening sterility about it, about Mordor. Nothing can grow there. Not even the leprous growths that feed on rottenness. I love that, that phrase. Um, not even that grows there. Faramir. Look how fast we're going now. Henneth uh, Anun, I think, is really interesting. That is the, the, the window on the sunset uh, that, they, that they come to. This is... Uh, I think... I think it's a fairly richly symbolic moment. This is Gondor, an outpost of Gondor, which is has one window which faces out to the west. And they arrive there just at the right time of day, Faramir says. What is the time of day? Which is the best and most appropriate time of day? Sunset. When the sunset is coming in through the, through the waterfall and it's very, very beautiful, Right? From there, they see the sun setting over Gondor. Later, they see the moon setting over Gondor. Um, Faramir, in his conversation leading up to this, has been talking about the waning of Gondor all the way through. Notice the difference between him and Boromir? Suggest to Boromir that Gondor is waning and see what he says. 
right? Faramir can't stop talking about it. <laughs> ah, we men of Gondor can no longer be called high. I mean, Boromir would be slapping him right now if he were there. They didn't care what discussions were like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's... Now, we're told they got along perfectly well. But, I, but, yeah, they certainly have very different perspectives on, on things. But I think we have an interesting kind of double resonance of looking out on the sunset. On the one hand, this, this is a sort of image for Gondor in decline. This is the sunset of the realm of Gondor. But it's also looking west, and that's a good thing. That actually shows some promise. As he says, we no longer become, can be called high. Uh, we have become middlemen of the twilight, but with memories of other things, he says. And we can still see the memories of other things uh, in, for instance, their dinner customs. The fact that they say grace before the meal and give thanks and recognize the Valar. Nobody else does that. This is one of the only religious rituals described anywhere, or semi-religious rituals, described anywhere in, 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 in Tolkien's writings. Um, that's, that's kind of interesting. But again, it shows they have memories of other things. Um, the hobbits are, by contrast, rustic. They feel rustic, anyway. Courteous, but rustic. Okay, if I don't get to Sam, I'm determined to talk about Faramir. Faramir refuses the ring. Uh, Peter Jackson and company could not handle how awesome Faramir was. They had to deliberately dial down the awesomeness. Because he just flat refuses it. And they couldn't take it because he's larger than life. And that's the thing that, that, the, that the movies consistently refuse, is just completely larger than life characters. Not if I found it by the highway would I take it, I said. And that's what I meant. Um, he shows his quality, right? As Sam says, shows his quality to be of the very highest. And we see he has a moment which might be temptation, it might be a kind of dramatization, but in any way, he immediately turns back from it. He recognizes the temptation. And he has power. One gets the distinct impression from what he does after he refuses the ring that he could certainly use the ring. Sam says that he has an air that reminds him of wizards. And he does. Look at, what, look at his interactions with Gollum. Look at how he affects Gollum. On page 696, for instance. Faramir says in the middle of the page, It is called Kirith Ungol. Gollum hissed sharply and began muttering to himself. Is not that its name? said Faramir, turning to him. No, said Gollum. And then he squealed as if something had stabbed him. Yes, yes, we heard the name once. He can't look Faramir in the face and lie about it. He cries out in pain when he tries to do so. Faramir wrings the truth from him. We see this on the, on, on the previous page, too, on, on, on 674, at the bottom of the page. Come hither, look at me. Slowly, Gollum raised his eyes and looked unwillingly into Faramir's. All light went out of them, and they stared bleak and pale for a moment into the clear, unwavering eyes of the man of Gondor. There was a still silence. Then Gollum dropped his head and shrank down until he was squatting on the floor, shivering. What has just happened between them is like what happened between Gandalf and Saruman. There has just been a conflict of wills. And Gollum has been squashed by Faramir. And look at the way he talks about this later. Faramir is saying things like, he has done murder before. I read it in him. But I do not think you are holden to go to Kirith Ungol, of which he has told you less than he knows. That much I perceived clearly in his mind. That's exactly how Gandalf would talk. That's kind of almost how Elrond talks. He curses Gollum. You remember this? On page 675. 
the bottom of the page, you are under doom of death. Yet if ever you, are, you be found by any man of Gondor astray without him, that is Frodo, the doom shall fall, and may death find you swiftly within Gondor or without if you do not well serve him. That's a curse right there. And Sam remembers it and invokes it later on when they find themselves trapped in Shelob's lair. On 706, they've run to the end and they find the web and they can't escape and Shelob is coming up from behind. And Sam says, trapped in the end, gnats in a net. May the curse of Faramir bite that golem and bite him quick because he is now under the curse of Faramir because, you know, may, 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 you know, remember his curse, may death find you swiftly if you do not well serve him. And Sam plainly <laughs> operating under the impression that that curse is going to work. Faramir has the power to do it. Even the things that Faramir tosses off, he gives them the, the walking sticks, the staves, and says a virtue has been set on them of finding and returning. Virtue, that word means power. I mean, what he is saying is literally, these are magic stabs. A virtue has been set on them. They, a power has been set on them. Of finding and, and, and returning. By whom? By whom? He talks like he has power all the way through. Um, well, of course, we'll come back to Faramir uh, in the next book. Um, but remember this introduction that we get to him. Shewab and Sam, next time. We were so close. All right. We will start the return of the king in the next class. And don't forget that I'll be joined by special guest Michael Drought for the next session. So that should be a lot of fun. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.